Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Stephen Clark, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, John Crawford, Akai Gurley, Freddie Gray. We say their names over and over again. The list never stops. Black and brown Americans murdered by police at wildly disproportionate rates in a white America which just refuses to surrender our power and privilege to stop this from happening. And in the middle of the latest national response to the murder of George Floyd comes Juneteenth. It's a commemoration of the day in June when slaves were freed at the end of the Civil War. To mark this history and to speak frankly about systemic racism, we have two episodes this week where we look at the history and the future of racism in America. Today, my guest is Blair Imani, who is just one of my favorite people. Blair is a critically acclaimed historian, outspoken advocate and activist, and dynamic public speaker. The author of two historical books, Modern, Her Story, Stories of Women and Non-Binary People, Rewriting History, and Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration and the Black American Dream. She centers women and girls, global black communities, and the LGBTQ community. She is the co-host of America Did What?, an educational podcast, an anti-racism initiative with Kate Robards. We are so happy, so, so happy to have her on the show. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice. Please. Please. Please, I can't breathe. Please, man. Tens of thousands braved a hot, humid day to call for reform in the U.S. Capitol. That protest and others around the world have arisen from outrage over the death of George Floyd, who died while in police custody in Minneapolis. I watched a white officer assassinate a black man, and I know that tore your heart out. Protesters facing off against authorities, kneeling and raising their hands in peaceful demonstration. But then, almost suddenly, U.S. Park and Secret Service police began shoving and hitting. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. Blair Lonnie. I'm a historian and author of Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration, and The Black American Dream. It's time that we realize as Americans that white supremacy and racism are as American as apple pie. It's time that we act on that understanding and move forward toward a better future and a more perfect union. I'm here to educate you. And I'm sorry, but not sorry. I want to talk about your book, Making Our Way Home. And I think we should talk about it in the context of the George Floyd murder. As a historian, can you put this murder and the response to it in historical context for us? Oh, absolutely. So in 1936, there was the lynching of Willie Keys in Little Rock, Arkansas. And the public lynching, like 
We see the way that there's curfews being put on Black people in Black neighborhoods, the way that there's hyper-militarization and policing of Black communities. That's not new. But in 1936, it was more of the vigilante group doing it, the Ku Klux Klan. So in this context, they threatened any Black person who dared go to work the next day. And I get a lot of my energy from my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, Big Daddy. He was like, you know what? I'm going to work. And word got around very quickly, and it became very unsafe for anyone to even be in the home that he had with my great-grandmother and his kids. So he, that evening, had to get into his white boss's car, drive as far as he could west, and hope that he could connect with somebody and remember somebody's address who had already moved out west. Mm. And he did it, and that's why my family exists. Imagine with me this scene. It's a scene that played out in nearly all of our families. It's a scene in which a young person, somewhere in our family tree, somewhere in our lineage, had a heartbreaking decision to make. It was a decision to leave all that they had known and all of the people that they had loved and to set out for a place far, far away that they had never seen in hopes that life might be better. Migration is usually a young person's endeavor. It's the kind of thing that you do when you're on the cusp of life. And so there is in all of our families this young person somewhere in our background. My great-grandmother, like, imagine the hardship and the pain of being a Black woman in the South, suddenly having to scatter your kids to different neighbors' homes. Your husband has mm. to flee. You don't know if he's okay for months. And, you know, in my story, there is a happy ending. My great-grandfather, he lived to the ripe old age of, like, I think, 92 or 93. My grandma, Bernadine, is that age now, and she's able to tell me those stories, but if we think about the story of George Floyd, like this terrorism that Black people have had to endure and face, not because we deserve it, not because it's justified, but because there were no protections. And so I think that when you don't learn those things as a country, right? Like, for example, between 1934 and 1968, 98% of the home loans that were issued in the United States, mm -hmm. 98% were given to white people. And I told this to a woman who I think was probably in her 60s or 70s, and she flatly responded to me, well, why were Black people not applying for loans? And I was like, so humble and gracious. I was like, oh, okay, let me clarify. And I explained to her that we were applying, but we were getting accepted only on like a tiny 2% margin. And if you don't know that, like she's 60 or 70 years old, and her entire life she hasn't lived the experience of Black people or learned about it because it's been purposefully hidden and we've been silenced. So it creates a worldview that is that, you know, that is in contrast with what my grandma went through. And because of that, there's a lot of confusion when there are um, just mass uprising and outrage. And we see things like George Floyd being knelt on for almost nine minutes. And a lot of people who I work with and speak to, a lot of my anti-racist folks, like they are trying to console and help their family, uh, and these are white folks, helping their family members understand that this is not new. When Walter Scott was shot multiple times in the back mm. on video, that was something where we thought, oh, this is going to be the one. With every lynching, the Black community 
was hoping either within themselves or within, you know, the government structures that protection would come, that this would be the thing to stop it. And that has not stopped. I mean, even in New York, the NYPD, I think there was two shootings of innocent Black people while the protests were happening. So this urgency is not new, but I think in the context of the Great Migration, we had such little power and such little protection as a people, we moved. And we had to uproot ourselves by force to make a better life. There's so much to unpack. I th- I think I first just want to touch on what you said when you mentioned the way policing works. I feel like this country needs to really be changed from the ground up, from the nonstop killing of Black people to the higher rates of stopping, searching, arresting, charging, and convicting Black people to the way, you know, even police keep escalating and provoking conflict as their go-to response to these protests. It all just feels broken. And I'm wondering what you think the answer is on how we fix it. You know, for a long time, I tried to do so many things at once where I was trying to like place things into historical context and do the education while also doing direct action work, being in the streets. I'm a former organizer. I was arrested in 2016 in Baton Rouge at the protest of Alton Sterling. And I decided that the best thing for me to do is to teach and to do history. And then at the same time to uplift the folks who are doing really important intentional work. There's so many different streams, right? There's the long-term goal a lot of people have for getting rid of police and really overhauling the conditions we have ending cash bail. We have breaking news out of Minneapolis at this hour where Minneapolis city council members at a rally have announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Hey, thank you, Chris. Well, their main message here was to invest in the community and not the police. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. There's a lot of fights that are being fought at once. We need all of that work. We need people who are doing work that is instantaneous and also work that is institutional and long term. But we can have both. Yeah. And I think we need both. I thought what Obama said in the middle of the protest was so poignant, which is a lot of people are saying to protest with your vote. And he was like, I want you all to vote. But this is about doing both. It's not an either or. It's an and. Right. It's both. We need all of it. We need, especially with something like racism, we need all cylinders firing at once to even make a dent in this in our lifetimes. I mean, that's how I feel anyway. Like, yeah, I agree. And if we're going to get serious about it, like, let's get serious about it. Let's do that painful, self-reflected work. Let's do that work where white people are willing to say, I'm inherently racist because I grew up in an inherently racist system. Yeah. And that's actually the first thing that Kate Robards does in America Did What, our anti-racism program, is to, you know, really be upfront with white people. She has like this white on white orientation in which white people really have to come to terms and reckon with the fact that I am racist is something that is true for 
I would say white people, but also for privileged people, for people of color, you know, I'm a fair skinned black woman. I'm colorist because I benefit from colorism and Mm -hmm. it is entrenched in every part of who I am, even though my parents have worked since I was a baby to prevent it from affecting me and my siblings because we're all different shades and hues. So it's coming to terms with this reality and then dedicating yourself to being brutally honest with who you are, what you benefit from, and how racism has impacted not only your past, but how you are going to allow it or disallow it to impact your future. When incidents like this occur, there's a big chunk of our fellow citizenry that feels as if because of the color of their skin, they are not being treated the same. And that hurts. And that should trouble all of us. This is not just a black issue. It's not just a Hispanic issue. This is an American issue that we should all care about. All fair-minded people should be concerned. Because the thing is, you know, Amy Cooper isn't the only white woman to ever call the police because she felt, quote-unquote, threatened. And there are people everywhere that we're probably friends with who have done that, not recognizing, maybe until Amy Cooper, how harmful it is. And so it's about connecting those dots and making it clear that racists aren't, you know, horned, thorktoed devils with half-goat bodies. Like, they're everyday people, and they make hiring decisions, and they make decisions about oh, curriculum. Absolutely. And we so have to smart. dismantle yes. all of it. Yes, yes, it's so smart. And I would just add that for every Amy Cooper that's actually willing to pick up the phone to call the cops, there is an Amy Cooper that thinks it but doesn't act on it. Also racist. Increasingly that happens. But what I'm saying is like, that's also racist. Like if you're sitting there and you're like, oh, God, and you're feeling that but don't actually go through the actions, you're a fucking racist. See, Alyssa, my bar is so low that I'm like, if you thought it and you didn't do it, you get a star. If you thought it and you didn't do it, you still thought it. You still have work to do. You still have to look at yourself and figure out what that is, what that impulse was. Anyway, I don't want to lay my anger and emotion on you because you have your... Hey, I volunteered for this podcast. I'm happy with it. (laughs) And, And you know... That's another thing. As I have people reaching out, sometimes I'll respond. Yesterday, a white woman whose name was Valerie reached out. Actually, we were just kind of commenting back and forth and making jokes. I was joking about how people are treating my DMs like a confessional. She made jokes about going to Catholic school. We were having a good time. So I messaged her and she had this beautiful family. Her husband is black. She has a kid who's mixed race. I actually kind of, we have the same hair, like our kids' hair and my hair are the same. And so I started talking to her and she was like, oh, you don't have to educate me. And I was like, I know I reached out to you just to have a conversation. And so I think that it's refreshing for white folks to really have a consent culture. And I call it consent culture. It's when you basically say before the conversation, are you cool with this? And the example I use is you wouldn't talk to somebody about Game of Thrones right after the season finale about what happened the next day Mm. in the office. That's a jerk move, you know. (laughs) And so you would say first, hey, did everyone watch that? cool, let's talk about it. And in the same way, I really love this movement that is happening kind of organically and from a place of empathy and understanding just innately where people are saying, are you ready for the conversation? Should I even reach out? Like some of my white friends back from high school, elementary school are just like, hey, Blair, I'm here not asking you to do labor, but I'm around. And I think that's really beautiful. If you can identify what in your heart is driving that and then 
harness it, grow it, and nourish it like, you know, a sunflower and make it grow, then we'll have a beautiful bouquet of anti-racist flowers plopping up everywhere. I think we'll get free a lot sooner. As a historian, you will be able to relate to this, I think. We have to get better at how we teach the history of this country because my daughter came into the room while I was watching the news and I was crying. And she asked why. And I told her. I told her all the details. She's five. And she said to me, wait, that still happens, Mama? I got a lot of love and respect for police officers down to the original eight police officers in Atlanta that even after becoming police had to dress in a YMCA because white officers didn't want to get dressed with niggers. And here we are 80 years later. I watched a white officer assassinate a black man. And I know that tore your heart out. And I know it's crippling. And I have nothing positive to say in this moment. Because I don't want to be here. And that's because when we teach about Martin Luther King Jr., we teach about him. And I think the lesson just sort of stops there in the civil rights movement. And we don't tell them that this is still a fight that we need to have, that we need to keep having. Absolutely, we don't teach American history because most of the American history that I was learning in school was not what my parents were teaching me. It was like constantly supplemental, like, oh, you heard the half of it. And the biggest thing for me and like my biggest, I think, drive in all of this in teaching anti-racism and teaching history is for people to understand why the civil rights movement happened because we know that it happened, right? But we also, at least in curriculum, it feels like, and I say this in the intro of my book, that there was slavery and then Black people fully disappear until the 60s and Mm. then we have Afros and we have music and we have jazz, but that's not really what happened. And so we have to place it in context to understand what was happening for everybody, not just for the few who had the most privilege. And what is history missing before the civil rights movement? Oh, so much. I think if there was one thing I could place, though, it would be redlining, because Mm -hmm. there was a kid across the street from me when I lived in Brooklyn who lived in public housing. And people knew that I was kind of an activist or outspoken. And so I started helping some kids with their homework. And this one kid comes up to me and he's like, you know, Miss Blair, if you are so smart, why do we all live in the projects? And he meant like we all as in black people, because for him, he had only seen black people in his family living in public housing and see white people and their children moving into the neighborhood and gentrifying it. And so for him, he felt like, you know, what happened? So I explained redlining. I explained how following World War II, the GI Bill, which was supposed to give everybody a chance at the American dream, was disproportionately benefiting white people and how the reason why there's no grocery stores in places like Brooklyn, why there's no grocery stores in small rural areas or areas that are predominantly black is because of redlining and because of laws created by the United States government. And 
we can't disconnect the fact that black veterans are being treated horribly today Mm -hmm. with the reality that in 1925, the U.S. Army War College issued a totally bullshit statement that said that black people were inferior to white people. And that was law literally until the Tuskegee Airmen came about and there were fights from the NAACP. So I think to summarize it, I guess, what's missing is black people and what we did because we were not passive recipients of history happening to us. We were taking the hands that were holding on to the institutions of white supremacy and prying them apart finger by finger mm-hmm. as gangs tried to attack us and destroy us and dismantle us. So we are a people of survivors and, you know, bringing it to a broader message, indigenous people too, the fact that indigenous people Native Americans in the United States didn't get citizenship until 1924. And the fact that coronavirus is disproportionately hitting the Navajo Nation. Oh, it's the craziest thing. Also, did you know South Korea is actually donating their ventilators to Navajo Nation? Because we're not even like... about borders or participating in helping. And that's something that, you know... We should be beyond. We are the richest country in terms of our cultural output, also our gross domestic product. But I mean, we are a rich country. There's no reason why we should have people who the land was literally stolen from be denied life and liberty and just the ability to mind their own business and be healthy. You know, like that's the big thing I've been stressing is that Black people people of color, we want to be able to mind our own business and be thriving. We don't want to be constantly surveilled and harassed and monitored to be great. We want to do it on our own. We're American individualists. And that applies to people of color, too. And that's a long way off. I also think there's just so many misconceptions because no one has gone down as being the historical voice. You know, there's just too many blanks for white races to fill in. And I think that we have this misconception in the country that racism and racial violence and police violence against Black people are Southern problems, right? I mean, like, the killing of George Floyd happened in Minnesota. Tamir Rice was killed in Cleveland. Eric Gardner in New York. Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And on and on and on. So why do you think we perceive racism and racist policing as a Southern problem. Well, I mean, except for CNN. And if you think about like before CNN existed, when there were like four channels, you know, where was the news coming from? Where could people refute what was happening? It's a lot easier to say, oh, that was a problem over there when they had a delay in infrastructure and telecommunications literally in the South to be able to say, no, it's not like this is what's happening here. And the way that the civil rights movement was portrayed in my book, I make it very clear that as there was movements in the South, there were bus boycotts, there were people taking action in their own lives. It was also people who were literally related to the folks who were still in the South and had moved from those same cities who were supporting that work and were also fighting their own initiatives because it a cop-out. I deal with so many people, especially in, unfortunately, liberal folks, like at least with Mm. the MAGA people, they're like, I don't like black people. I'm up front. And you know kind of what to do. And then you have liberal folks who are like the movie Get Out. I would vote for Obama a third time if I could, while simultaneously refusing to hire somebody because his name is Jamal. You know, there's a lot of work to do. And I think it's a super hindrance because if you constantly think, oh, well, at least I'm not like the Texans down there, then you don't 
and right. yourself. It's like going to church and saying, well, at least I'm not the biggest sinner. And then you don't read the Bible yourself and you're not praying or you don't read the Quran or the Torah and you're still judging everyone. I think that's the spiritual soul work that we have to do as a nation on racism. Are there parallels, do you think, between lynchings and the police killings that we see today? Absolutely. The legal definition of lynching is when three or more persons, which constitute a mob, put someone to death extra-legally without court sanction, without legal sanction, and they do it for the purpose of tradition uh, and or whatever their version of justice is. God, it would speak volumes to the racial pain and the hurt of generations. I do not need my colleague, the senator from Kentucky, to tell me about one lynching in this country. I've stood in the museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and watched African-American families weeping at the stories of pregnant women lynched in this country and their babies ripped out of them. While this body did nothing, I can hear the screams as this body and membership can of the unanswered cries for justice of our ancestors. I think what's important for people to understand is that organizations in the United States that track domestic terrorism and track white supremacy have issued reports that are publicly available that there has been white supremacist infiltration into law enforcement. And there's so much talk about changing systems from the inside out. But if we're expecting a black cop to join a police force and then suddenly wave a magic wand, regardless of his privilege and how he's being marginalized in his own workspace or, you know, she for that matter, or they, to suddenly change things, that's irresponsible and a tall order for us to demand. So we have to think about how policing in the United States came from slave patrol and how when people talk about property, it's really mind boggling for me as a historian because I wonder if black people would be more protected if we were still owned. Now that's not something I'm volunteering at all. To be clear about that because sometimes trolls get out here. But what I'm saying is that were we valued more when we were owned as a people than when we are so-called free? And the last connection about that, too, is when we look at the 13th Amendment about how slavery is supposedly abolished, except as a punishment for crime. If you haven't, I highly recommend, I know you probably have, Alyssa, but for listeners, watching the documentary by Ava DuVernay about the 13th Amendment and how there are plantations in the South, like the Angola Penitentiary, which is a plantation. And when I would bring books to prisoners there, you drive past and it feels like you should be in a horse and buggy in the late 1800s, you know, or the mid 1800s, because people are literally killing crops. And you see black people shackled to one another in chain gangs. What has changed? We have computers now, but there are so many people who are unfree. I was on a Zoom chat with Albert Woodfox from the Black Panthers yesterday, who was telling us about the Angola Three. He was in solitary confinement for 30 years. I mean, it's his story is just unreal. But also, while you were talking, it made me think about something that was so eye-opening for me. In 2000, I lived in South Africa for three months, and I volunteered in a township in a children's hospital there. And the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around, okay, so this was 2000, right? So it was not even a decade after apartheid was abolished. White kids and black kids had just recently started going to school together. And I was so struck by the fact that every single conversation that I had with black people, they kept saying to me, like, I was happier then. Mm. 
And I was like, wait, wait, like what? My mind is blown right now. What do you mean? And every one of them had the same philosophy of I knew where I belonged then. That reminds me so much of my uncle, Vernon, who was a Black Panther, and we would be at Thanksgiving, and he would say things, and I was a kid, so I would only catch it in passing, like, he would say things like, you know, integration was the worst thing that happened to the Black community, and I would be like, what? Because growing up, you know, we learned that that was the end goal. Martin Luther King solved racism, or, you know, more kind of allegorically, they say, like, he died for the sins of a nation. He didn't die for anything. He was assassinated. He wanted to live, I'm sure, to a ripe old age. But the way that it's talked about is different. And so when my uncle would say that, I would constantly be like, what are you talking about? And I'm so upset, you know, he passed away in 2017 and I'll never be able to have the conversation with him in life. But, you know, we reconnected at one point about how now I understand what he means, because though we are still systematically deprived of resources, reparations, the ability to direct our own futures, the ability to live, to go on a jog, to go to the park. So many different things we're told we're free and that we have nothing to complain about and that mm. there's nothing to overcome and the other thing too is that the policing was different you know things were different so it's hard to compare apples to oranges you know i've never lived that life but i understand now and i can see it with empathy what my uncle would say and what those folks in south africa must have felt because what we know you know and I, by we i mean privileged people or folks who didn't live that reality what we know to be good And what we know to be progress isn't always what matches up with the people who are suffering the most. Let's talk about generationally what that meant for them also in 2000 in South Africa. It meant that they had opportunity, that they had money, that they had jobs, but their families still lived in a township because they didn't and they didn't have the skills to get out of it. So you would have the most, like I'd be in the township volunteering and all of a sudden you'd see like this totally incredible show of wealth by someone driving into the township in a BMW. And you think, like, what the fuck is happening? And it people are still living in townships because they can't get their families out of township. And family means so much to them that they continue to live in the township. So it's like this gray generation of, like, I remember what that was like. I knew where I could and couldn't go. And we knew that people were racist. We knew. That sounds more like how I feel having left Louisiana. Because when I was in Louisiana, I knew when I was going to deal with some nonsense from a white person, I knew when I was going to deal with racism, I very much knew Mm. where I stood with people. And being out West, like I'm from Los Angeles, being back home, more subtle. It's somebody grabbing their purse a little tighter. It's somebody staring at you for way too long. You know, sometimes in LA, it's because they think you're a celebrity or they notice you from Twitter. But it's like that feeling of being constantly watched and it's that unnerving feeling. And when we lived in Brooklyn, my partner and I, when we moved up from Louisiana to New York, we moved to a black neighborhood because 
it was just that feeling of people are going to watch out for us. We're not going to deal with people calling the cops on us. We're not going to deal with the side effects and honest health consequences of racism. And we still doesn't mean that we're problem free. It doesn't mean that life is perfect, but we had one less thing to deal with. Well, one of the things I love about your book is how it focuses on the effects of that migration had on all aspects of our culture, from art to business to politics. Can you talk about some of these impacts? Absolutely. I ended my book talking about hip hop because the reason why we have hip hop is because of the Great Migration. And so many scholars have alluded to this, like Naima Cochran, like Feminista Jones, the fact that hip hop wouldn't have come out of so many of the structures and systems that we overcame as a people or that we endured not intentionally, but by force because of the powers that be, because of white supremacy. And so hip hop, which is the greatest cultural export of the United States, the fact that, you know, like K-pop groups and the fans from K-pop groups are being in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, people are surprised by that. But it's not surprising to me because they love the music that we originated as a people. So of course, they're going to stand up for us. In Korean, Black Lives Matter is being translated to Black lives are just as precious. And commentators are baffled why there's any solidarity here but you know we wear the same clothes we dress you know like it came from us and they see that and so they're standing up for us and so the cultural impact of black people in the united states lovia day did an article a couple years ago called blacksit and it was about what would happen if black people exited america you wouldn't have stoplights you wouldn't have open heart surgery you wouldn't have had this win you wouldn't have had that you wouldn't have any sports that may be hockey, but there's so many things right. that we've contributed. And I think it's so important to celebrate those things because that's also how we got by. And the reason why I stress that is because there's so many young people who are protesting and who feel like because they see the backlash that you're speaking about, you know, they think, oh, I have to pick a side. Either I can be a fun kid, I can have a childhood, or I have to be totally serious. And that's never been who we are as a people. We are people who go hard for justice and also go hard for our families and for fun and for love and for celebration and exuberance. And they're not mutually exclusive. We want to live in the world we're creating. And that means creating music and dancing and having fly clothes and getting an afro and being stylish and being fresh and being cute and being hip, creating new words and new American vocabulary. But it also means that there are very real consequences to when someone doesn't want you there. I mean, it makes me think about little Richard. And, you know, he just died. In the uh, the very beginning of the show, I made a statement, which uh, I think is a pretty fair one. Uh, let me know what you think of it. If you hadn't come along, or uh, maybe rock and roll would have started differently or later. Uh, I'm sure it would have started s sooner or later. Uh, um, I, um, I don't believe it would have got started at all. Uh, in my home... In my hometown, Macon, Georgia, where I'm from, I've never heard any rock and roll music before. It was swinging sway with Sammy K when I was a little boy. Yeah. Throughout his life, he identified as the inventor of rock and roll, something that our history often attributes to Bill Haley and the Comets, right? I mean, is this something that happens, you think, often in history? And, <laughs> and, and who are some of the people whose accomplishments <laughs> have been attributed to white people? It's funny because that's how I started my book out. And I decided to start out talking about my family instead. Because really quick, it started to be a diatribe against Elvis and like so many different people. <laughs> but, you know, Elvis, for example, like Elvis Presley, there were so many things that were taboo and were considered race music. 
One of the wildest bits of information I found out about when I was researching, and of course my grandparents lived it, so they're like, yeah, duh, is that rock and roll venues, they would make black people and white people enter from separate entrances, and then it wouldn't be segregated on the inside. So it was just to prove a point, you know? Hmm. But at a time when black music was getting called race music and rock and roll was too loud and too scary and it was going to cause racial distress and disharmony, you had people like Elvis who were like, well, I'm going to do that and I'm going to make a ton of money off of it. And what excites me today that is different and even was different then, like the Beatles paid homage to the Motown folks. I mean, Elton John, who I absolutely adore in his film, which didn't have to include any black people because it was literally a biopic about a white man, you know, he talked about not only the influences of black Motown artists on his music and on his sound and how he's worked with them, but he also talked about the influx of South Asian people. And it was mm. through a dance sequence, but the acknowledgement was dope. The South Asian influence of folks who were getting into the mod scene at the same time as the partition of India had just kind of taken place and people were relocating to London. So there are so many people who their contributions are misattributed. And it continues to happen in fashion. What I love about the modern age is that with social media, we can start to say, hey, that's mine. I did that. Hashtag cite black women. Don't let Sister Rosetta Tharp, who is the originator of rock and roll, get slept on and ignored in favor of Elvis Presley. So Juneteenth is about to be observed in mid-June. Can you just tell us a bit of the history on Juneteenth and how is it celebrated today? Absolutely. And in my role coming into being a historian, I really have to pay homage to one woman, and that's Miss Sadie Roberts Joseph, who tragically was murdered in July of last year. She is the reason I'm a historian, and she's the reason that Juneteenth is alive in so many Southern cities today. She taught me about what Juneteenth is and that Emancipation Day, which is really at the core of Juneteenth, speaks to the fact that when the Independence Day happened on the 4th of July, Black people were in bondage. Indeed, women of all races were in bondage. Native Americans were not considered citizens and were considered hostiles. And so Juneteenth represents the fact that freedom still has been deferred to us, but that it was the official end to chattel slavery. The history books have glorified Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation for freeing slaves. But if we're being real... It only applied to slaves who lived near Union lines, where they could flee his or her plantation or take advantage of opportunities in the North. Around half a million black people managed to do this. These black people freed themselves. That on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state the people whereof shall be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And by virtue of the power, and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are henceforward shall be free. And that the executive government of the United States including the military, naval authorities, therefore will recognize and maintain freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence unless in necessary self-defense. 
and the reason why it's called Juneteenth and not June 19th or June 18th is because the people were enslaved. So let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. So basically, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Lincoln, and that was kind of a farce because what he basically did was say, hey, all of you states that just decided to not pay attention to American authority, free the slaves. And they were like, uh, pass, you know what I mean? Like they weren't going to listen to their president who they didn't feel like was their president. Um, and so Texas was one of the worst perpetrators of this because it took two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued that they finally adhered and started to announce the freeing of enslaved people. And it wasn't really until troops were federalized, brought into the South, and then Reconstruction took place following Juneteenth. And for those who don't know, that means that the South was split up into five districts. They all had a main governor. And for a state to be readmitted into the Union, they had to approve a constitution. And during that time, there were 1,500 Black men who were appointed. You know, it was a promise of a new and better future. But of course, it kind of hit the fan, thanks to Rutherford B. Hayes. But Juneteenth represents the promise of a better tomorrow for Black America and a far more compelling Independence Day than July 4th when Black people and Black loyalists who fought the British were denied their freedom. The Black loyalists who fought for Britain, they live now in Nova Scotia. They weren't granted any freedom. They got to move to a super cold place and got zero resources, but were slightly more free, I suppose. And the Black folks who had fought for the United States, they were continuing to be in bondage. And so there's the piece by Frederick Douglass about what is the Fourth of July to the Negro? Like, what does it mean for us to celebrate? And we really have to consider that. And so Juneteenth is just so much more. And I think that for a long time, I was embarrassed to celebrate Juneteenth because it was kind of that thing where sometimes immigrant kids are like embarrassed to speak their native language or embarrassed to wear their native clothing. I felt embarrassed of that aspect of my culture because I was like, well, why can't we just do the American thing? And it's because the American thing doesn't value us mm. and we have to name it and we mm. have to move forward. Well, Moving forward, looking around now at how bad things seem to be, I want to know what gives you hope. Can we fix racism? <laughs> I'm going to say yes, because what I mean by fix is end, right? But then also make right the injustices that have happened. And it's going to take reflection. You know, we can fix so many things as a country. Like the same day that these uprisings really kicked off was the day that, you know, we sent more people into space. And that cognitive dissonance isn't new. So I'm a true optimist. I believe that, yes, we can change, we can make better, we can improve, but it comes with acknowledging the wrongs and doing that work and then growing that out into our different contexts and into our different institutions. And I'm actually really hopeful because I'm receiving so much support, literally, in 48 hours, I've tripled my platform on Instagram, and it's not just people who are like, hey, I'm going to follow you because it's a vanity follower because I'm supposed to. It's people who are like reaching out and saying, help me fix this. And I'm willing to help. You know, we have an anti-racism platform with America Did What. We're educating people. And Me and White Supremacy is sold out. That's a book by Leila Saad. How to be anti-racist. That's being sold out. So people are clearly moving and taking action in a new way. And maybe it was a pandemic that, quote unquote, needed to happen for people to get away from the trappings of capitalism and what distracted them from the injustice for people to finally wake up and rise up. Well, Blair, I love you. Thank you for being my friend and thank you for being a part of the podcast. 
In the podcast, Blair mentioned the Beyond Vietnam speech by Dr. Martin Luther King. I'd like to close today's show with an excerpt from that speech. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 